Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab them, turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to continue our Advent series this morning, studying through uh, Luke chapter 2. We'll do the first 20 verses of Luke 2 as we speak and study on um, the Advent theme of joy this morning. Again, uh, Friday is our Christmas Eve service, so I'll invite you to that at 5 o'clock. For those of you who came in late, which is half of you, uh, I want to invite you. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, I want to invite you to that. Uh, five o'clock on, on Friday night. So we're just gonna worship there and be a part of, of gathering together and celebrating the birth of our Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One. I wanna invite you to that uh, five o'clock Friday night. All right, Luke chapter two is where we'll be. We're continuing our Advent series. We'll do joy today. And then on Friday, we'll finally light the Christ candle in the middle as we celebrate Jesus coming as a light uh, to the world to push back darkness. Luke chapter two, uh, David and Don read this earlier and David spoke great eloquently about joy and what true joy is as a follower of Jesus. We're gonna study that this morning. I don't know what your house is like, especially around Christmas. Um, I think there are, there are people who are gifted in gift giving. They just love to give gifts. Is anybody like that? You like to give gifts, any of you? I'm taking names so I can remember. Uh, and then, then there are people who love to receive gifts. Anybody a good gift receiver? You love it? Okay. So uh, in your family, maybe you're like ours, and you have people in your family who, um, who are really good at giving gifts. They enjoy it. They, they, it's like they seem to know what you want, even without you telling them, or they're so good that they just want you to tell them exactly what you want, and then send them a link, and then they'll order it right then. That, that's a good gift giver to me. That's good. If, don't make it up. If I tell you what I want, that's what I want. Uh, that's, that's a good gift giver. But then you, you might also have good gift receivers in your home. But on the antithesis of that is a bad gift receiver. So in, in our home, we've got three kids. And we've got one child um, who is amazing at receiving gifts. I mean, it's the, it's the best. It doesn't matter what it is. It's the best. The best expressions. It's mouth wide open, eyes wide open, like shaking because they're so excited what they just received. It could be, I mean, it could be underwear. It's, it's the best, the best. I love it. And we love giving gifts to this child. We love it. Uh, so much so that we might tip the scales a bit in, in that child's favor. Uh, but it's so much fun. It's just, it's just, I'm just being honest. It's just fun. It's fun to give them gifts and they, uh, they're expressive. And then we've got one, maybe two children who are not quite as expressive. You have kids like that? Who you have to remind them how hard you worked for that. You remember that? I don't know if you have to have this talk with your kids before you go into maybe your in-law's house or grandparent's house and you have the talk in the car. Listen, when we go in, they're gonna give you gifts. And they've spent their money on these gifts. And I don't care if you like it or not, you pretend it's the best thing you've ever gotten in your life. I want you to scream. I want you to put your... I want all that. I want you fanning away the tears. I want all of it. All of it. Yeah, but it's like $5 in a small stocking. I don't care. I don't care. This is not about you today. This is about them. This is not, not about the person that gets the gift. It's about the person who gives the gift. Make them feel good about it. Do you have those kids like that? Do you have family like that? You have to remind them that this is a gift you've been given. Right, so, um, so at Christmas time, especially in our home, there, there is great joy and delight in the house um, when one child receives their gift. It's amazing. 
And then the other one, we're like, I don't know what we got wrong. I don't know what just happened. Because it was the exact thing you asked for. And we spent four times the amount that we normally would on you. And now it's like, you don't even care that we're here. So this is, this is how Christmas goes. Maybe you're the same way in your house. But the people that know how to receive gifts, they communicate joy and they fill the house with joy. It's just a blast to give them these gifts. Well, this morning, what we're gonna look at is an announcement, a heralding of the gift of the Messiah. And there are a people that God has chosen to reveal this gift to first. And I think it's because they are people who are good gift receivers. They're just good at it. And what we're gonna learn as we study through this is what makes a good gift receiver is someone who doesn't expect it. That's what makes them a good gift receiver. The person who expects the gift and then you give that to them, it just checks a box. They've earned it, it's what they asked for. But the people who don't expect it, there is great joy to be found when they receive the gift. We're back in Luke. We were in Matthew last week. We're back in Luke. Remember, Luke's perspective of the life of Jesus is Luke is a Gentile. He's not a Jew, doesn't have the whole Jewish history that Matthew does or that Mark and even John have. He's, he's different from that. Uh, Luke didn't walk with Jesus. Luke walked with people who walked with Jesus. And this is a number of years down the road and he has interviewed people, gotten eyewitness accounts of the ministry of Jesus. So we're gonna study here in Luke chapter two. I would imagine he met with some of these shepherds. He asked them some questions. He talked with Mary and Joseph. Like, hey, what was it like when these random men showed up at the, at, at the birth of your child? What was that like? Was that enjoyable for you? Was that fun? Had you bathed yet? How was that? Okay, so all these questions. So he's generating this account based on eyewitness accounts. He's had, he's had interviews with them. But what he's doing is he's setting up for the Jew, there was an expectation of the coming of the Messiah. It was billed from all the prophets that this Messiah, the way that they interpreted the prophecies, this Messiah would come as a reigning king to overthrow oppressive governments that were subjecting God's chosen people, the Jews, to all sorts of suffering. And at this point in history, uh, Jewish communities, Jewish regions are now occupied by Rome. So they're under Roman rule. And so the belief now is that this Messiah, whenever he would come, if he was coming, when he came, he would come as a political leader to overthrow the Roman Empire. This is what he would do. And he would do it with much bloodshed and really big horses. This is who the Messiah would be. They had expectations of what he would be like. And so some would come, some men, religious leaders, uh, political leaders would come, and some of the Jews would say, this must be the Messiah because he fits the bill. He looks like, he sounds like, he has this demeanor. So they would believe this might be the Messiah. A number of false messiahs had come through, particularly in the last 400 years, in which God was silent and hadn't spoken through a prophet. They're desperate for this Messiah to come, and so they have the expectation of what he will be like, and they're looking for him in that way. And they've neglected all the Old Testament accounts, even the one about King David, where they want a king, and so they come to find the next king, and David is the youngest. He's ruddy, he's uh, small, he's just, he's not, he's a poet, uh, he plays the harp, and so he's not necessarily who they thought would be king, and so they go through all of his brothers, starting with the tallest, most strapping young lad, all the way down, and it's so bad that his father forgets he has a son named David, forgets him. And the prophet's like, hey, don't you have another son? He's like, well, I don't do, oh, I do, I do, yeah, I do. Uh, he's out in the field and he's working with the sheep. And he has to be reminded to call that son and that son then becomes the king. 
And we are told that it's not God who looks on the outward appearance, but God looks up the heart. But over generations of uh, disappointment, looking for a savior, a Messiah, an anointed one, he hasn't come yet. They built an expectation of what he must be like. If God's waiting this long, he's gonna have to be pretty awesome. And so they built an expectation for him. But when Luke tells the story of the arrival of the Messiah, you're gonna notice how it's anything but expected. Anything but. Let's go to Luke chapter two, verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or be taxed. You need to get in a, a, a list of how many people there were and then to enable to tax them. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Remember, Luke is trying to root everything in history to let us know this isn't some fable. It's not a fairy tale. This is legitimately something that happened in history. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, or we would say his hometown. Joseph, now the husband of Mary, went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So it's the time of year. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, they want a registration. They want a list of all the inhabitants, the citizens, in order to tax them properly. And so they call everybody back to their hometowns that they might be counted. Now, if there was uh, a time that probably wasn't the peak time that Joseph and Mary wanted to travel 90 miles, this was it. She's close to nine months pregnant and now having to travel, unexpectedly having to travel. Not like they planned it, this is unexpected. It rolls down from Caesar Augustus, it gets finally to Mary and Joseph and they have to travel back to Bethlehem from Nazareth. It's a 92, 93 mile journey from the north, which is where um, Nazareth would have been, down through the hill country, probably along the valley of the Jordan River, and then back uphill to Bethlehem, the city of David, 90 plus miles. Now, uh, in traveling by foot, um, the most efficient travelers go about three miles an hour, two and a half to three miles an hour, which means they could probably travel 15 to 20 miles a day, walking full time, 15 to 20 miles a day, five to eight hours, which would take them over five days to get to Bethlehem. Except Mary is pregnant, like about to pop pregnant. There's no way she's traveling two and a half miles per hour. So they're walking, they have to stop a lot because the baby's pressing on her bladder, so now they have to stop a lot, and now she's hungry and she wants the pickles mixed with the peanut butter, so they gotta stop and get that, and it's just crazy. And so they're traveling these 90 plus miles, an arduous journey, uphill, downhill, rocky terrain, wet terrain, on top of that, uh, there are criminals everywhere, particularly along this path, ready, ready, knowing people will be traveling to Nazareth or to Bethlehem, ready to take whatever they wanted to. So they would travel in a pack, and if you've ever traveled in a pack, if you've ever caravan, you know you can't go as fast as you wanna go, because it just takes one slow person. It takes one slow person. It takes one person with a peanut-sized bladder, and it's gonna take you 45 hours to get from here to Savannah. That's, like, that's how long it takes. So they're traveling together, um, wild animals, thieves, robbers everywhere. This is, this is the journey that they're on. I know that in movies and stuff, we make it so pleasant, and she just sits kind of side-saddled on a donkey. Mary and Joseph just, just chit-chatting the whole time. Man, I just, you're so sweet, I love you. That's not happening. If you travel with your spouse, you understand, this is not happening. You're going too fast, slow down. Slow, stop, stop, hit the brakes. And she's pregnant, I'm just saying. Different emotions happen. 
So it's, I mean, it's painful, it's arduous, it's emotional. This is not what they want to be doing right now. They know the baby is going to arrive soon, and this is not where they want to be having this child. She wants to be at home, she wants to be surrounded by family, she wants all of the things that any, any mother would want, but they're traveling. But then verse six is interesting, the way that Luke phrases this, while they were there. As if to say, not when they finally arrived, as if to say, it just so happened, or this is just how it went down. This wasn't planned, this wasn't expected. While they were there, unexpectedly, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. This was unplanned. The baby was expected, but the place was unexpected. And notice they have moved from a town of Nazareth to the city of Judea. But the time had come. Galatians chapter four, Paul calls this uh, the culmination of history, or he says, when time was pregnant, she gave birth to a child. Verse seven, and she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, we've done a really good job of cleaning this up, making it just so pretty and fun for Christmas movies. So they traveled to Bethlehem. Uh, everyone has traveled to Bethlehem. Anybody in the lineage of David has traveled to Bethlehem. So what was a small little sleepy town has now become kind of just a big city. And there's not enough room for this. The, the roads aren't ready for this. It's, it's like McDonough. The roads aren't ready for all the people. <laughs> there's not, we're full. Like, there's not enough room. You can't, no more. Uh, so that's what's happening there. And so they get there and they get there late. You wanna know why they got there late? Because Mary's pregnant. And it took him a while to get there. And you know who's not happy they got there late? Joseph. If it wasn't for you, we would've been here earlier. We would've found a room. <laughs> we had to stop at Quick Trip again. So they get there, there's no more room. And they're knocking, hoping to stay with some family members. They've extended family there, hoping to stay with them, and, and they can't. No one has room. Um, there's no lodging. So they find a room. Now we've made this into some kind of wooden barn, and maybe it was. Maybe it was a cave, maybe it was some kind of a room on the backside of a house where they kept the animals. We don't, we don't really know. What you'll notice is Luke doesn't tell us. He just tells us where he was not born, not where he was, just where he was not born. But he's born, and they wrap him in swaddling cloths, so strips of fabric they would use to, like we swaddle babies. But remember, there's, they're gonna lay him in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is, a feeding trough. There's probably stone, not wood, it's stone where animals would drink and feed out of. So there's slobber there. There's all the things that, that comes with animals. It's all right there. And they lay him there. This is not where she planned to be having a baby, especially not the savior of the world. She had plans. She had a birth plan. She had a bag packed. She had all of it ready. This was not the plan. Unexpected. Wrapped in swaddling cloths, which could refer to what you would wrap an infant in, but also what you would wrap an infant lamb or a sheep in as well. So she, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths and placed in a manger because there was no room for the inn, for them in the inn. Verse eight. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. And so now, again, what Luke is saying is at the same time, while they were there in this place, as luck would have it, in the same region were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. But I want you to notice how 
insignificant what's happening is, how normal, how usual it is what's happening. In the same region, while they were there, there were shepherds out in the field. Yeah, because that's where shepherds are. And there were teachers in their classroom. Oh, really? And there were chefs in the kitchen. Oh, 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 wow, that's surprising. Luke's letting us know the shepherds were where they always were in the field. It's just what they do. There's nothing miraculous, nothing exciting about what's happening. It's, it's just a Tuesday night. Like, it's just, it's just happening. There's, there's no ball games. There's no Monday night football. There's nothing. It's just, it's just a night. And they're out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. They're doing what shepherds do, and they're doing it at night. Now, during the day, there's a lot of activity. Like, during the day, you gotta feed them, you gotta find places to eat and drink, and at the nighttime, they sleep, and so the shepherds just watch the sheep sleep for hours and hours and hours. What Luke is telling us is there's not much going on here in this sleepy town of Bethlehem. Everything's unexpected. The shepherds expected nothing like this. Verse nine. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now that's different. And the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So put ourselves there. It's pitch black, right? There's, There's no street lights. There's no billboards. There's no planes flying over. There's nothing. It's just black. It's just dark. Only thing they have is the moon and the stars. And the shepherds are out there keeping watch over their flock by night. And then one angel, one singular angel, peels back the curtain of darkness and shines. One angel. The glory of the Lord shone around them. The same glory that uh, Moses wants to see on the mountain. And God says, ah, no, you can't. You can't. You'll die. And that same glory that made Moses' face shine for days, this is the same glory, and it shone around the shepherds, and they were filled with great fear. Now, you wanna say, well, of course they were afraid. There's some random flying warrior. Of of course they would be afraid. But you need to understand what's happening here, and then we're gonna see the antidote to the fear, which tells us why they were afraid. Shepherds are the bottom rung of society. I mean, low-class citizens. They're of ill repute, Uh, Their testimonies don't count in a court of law. No matter what they say, you assume they're lying. This is who shepherds are. Because they're supposed to keep watch over sheep by night. What else are they gonna do? They're gonna make up stories about wolves. They're gonna tell you all about how amazing their job is. They're of ill repute. You can't trust them. And in fact, rabbis put them in the classification of what is called sinners. Now, inside that classification were prostitutes, and adulterers, there were lepers and tax collectors. This is who the shepherds are. They're not cute little boys in dresses made out of sheets. This is not who they are. These are gruff, grimy men and women on the outskirts of society. In other words, this was the only job they could get. They may not even be good at it, but they they weren't qualified to have any other kind of role. They're on the outskirts. They're hated. They're despised. They're talked about. This is who they are. They've got a past. They've got a storied past. And many of them, it's not just the past. It's probably the present. So when God shows up, and when God shows up to a tax collector or a leper or a prostitute, how do you think they feel? Well, they're filled with great fear. I don't think they're filled with fear at the majesty of the angel. 
think they're filled with the fear of the presence of God in their darkness. God shows up to sinners in the midst of their sin, which should sound very familiar to you when Paul begins writing. For when I was a sinner, Christ died for me. These are not, if you're writing the story of the birth of the Messiah, nothing has gone as planned. Nothing has. And the angels show up to, to men who are considered sinners. They've got nothing to offer. Like I just picture them. God shows up as an angel and they have to stop what they're doing because what they're doing is not what God will want them to be doing. And so one shepherd throws a cigarette down and just smashes it and pushes it back. Yes, Lord. One, you know, one dumps out his whiskey. The other one is like, I mean, they're trying to figure, God is there. And they know how God feels about them because the rabbis have made it clear how God feels about them. God hates them. God believes they're not good enough. God thinks they don't count. This is what they've heard. And so when God shows up to the shepherds, of course the assumption is, well, he's here to kill me. It's over for me. It's over. I haven't been to a temple because it would, it would burn to the ground if I walked in and now God's coming to me. It's over. He found me. It's over for me. It's a lot like Genesis chapter three when Adam and Eve sin and they run and hide from the Lord and the Lord says, where are you? And Adam says, well, we were afraid of you, so we hid. They run from the presence of God. The shepherds had run from the presence of God and yet God runs to them instead. And so God appears and an angel peels back the darkness. And the unexpected happens on just a typical night for the shepherds and they fear so the angel says to them in verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, don't be afraid. Now notice why he tells them not to be afraid. Because I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Don't be afraid, this is good news. Don't run and hide, this is good. Don't, don't bury it, don't run from it, don't pretend to be something else, this is good. You don't have to be afraid right now, this is good news. And this good news is full of great joy. And this good news of great joy is for all the people, like you, shepherds, just like you. This good news of great joy is for you. This is not bad news. Now notice in the verse before, they were filled with great fear. The Greek word is mega, mega fear. And now they're filled with mega joy. Great fear is met by great joy. This is unexpected. But this last phrase is so powerful, especially for the shepherds, for all the people. Shepherds haven't had joy in years. The shepherds haven't heard good news in years. All the shepherds here, if a lamb gets hurt or one runs away, is how awful of a shepherd they are. They, they haven't been celebrated, they haven't been praised, and then God splits open the darkness, shines his light, and he says, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people, for people just like the shepherds, and just like Zechariah the priest. Good news of great joy for all people, like Mary, the young virgin, and for Joseph, the older husband rule keeper for the older brother and the younger brother in Luke chapter 15. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Now, you know who's the most joyful about that? The people who don't expect the good news. The people who don't uh, consider themselves worthy of good news of great joy. 
and you know who's critical of what just happened? The people who feel like it's not fair that the shepherds get it. Because it doesn't say there were Pharisees keeping watch over their scrolls by night. There were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. The whole point of Luke's gospel is that Jesus is just like this. This is what he does. This is who he is. He shows up to people who don't deserve him. He gives good news of great joy to people who have no business receiving any of them from anyone, much less from God himself. This is the point of Luke's gospel. I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. And here's the good news in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. This is unexpected good news of great joy. So this word joy in the Greek, which is the language the New Testament is written in primarily, is the Greek word kara, meaning joy or gladness. But if you trace how this word is used throughout the New Testament, you will notice something striking about this word. It is always connected to something unexpected. The reason we have joy is not because we expect it, that's relief. That's not joy, that's just relief. Joy happens in the unexpected. It's happens a number of times. Here are some that stand out to me. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable of a man who finds a hidden treasure in a field and with joy he goes and sells everything to buy that field. Matthew 28, uh, Mary runs to the tomb and finds the tomb empty. And scripture reads that she was filled with both great fear and great joy, an unexpected empty tomb. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends the disciples off, 72 of them, to go cast out demons. And they come back to Jesus and you'll never believe it. They actually left. When we, when we exercised the demons, they left. And the Bible says they came back with great joy at what had just happened. They unexpected it. Luke chapter 24, uh, two men are walking on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus is walking with them, but he's hidden himself from them. He's disguised himself. And Luke tells us in Luke 24 that they came running back to Jerusalem with great joy that they had unexpectedly met the risen Christ. Acts chapter 12, uh, Paul has been in prison. He gets miraculously released from prison and he runs to where a lot of followers were praying for him and he knocks on the door. A little servant girl comes to open the door and in Acts chapter 12, we read that with such joy she saw him there, she didn't let him in, she ran and told other people. Joy happens in the unexpected. And I think a reason why many of us church people don't have joy is because we've lost the power of the unexpected. So we've got everything scheduled, we've got everything planned, we've got everything figured out. And I believe God chose the shepherds instead of the Pharisees because the shepherds were better at receiving the gift because of how they responded and reacted to this gift. It was unexpected, it's great joy for all the people. Then verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The shepherds hear that as you're pleased with us? You're pleased with us? 
No one's been pleased with us. The sheep aren't even pleased with us. You're pleased with us? The unexpected pleasure of God. I believe God didn't show himself to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were like, well, yeah, of course you're pleased with us. I mean, you've seen what we've done, right? You know how much we've memorized and how much we've given and how, how good our church attendance is. You know, you know how good we did with purity in high school? It's because that, of course, of course you're pleased with us. And so they would receive the gift a lot in the way that some of our children do. Um, okay. Thanks. No, tell them thank you and mean it. So here's the shepherds, unexpected and with great joy. You're pleased with us. We're shepherds. We're sinners. Pleased with us? Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I've read this for 40 years with the, with the wrong emphasis here. You know where I think the emphasis is? To us. You'll see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. To us. He made it known to us. He told us about it. We didn't hear it from someone else. We heard it from him. He's made it known to us. Now, if you read back through this account, what you'll notice is the angels are the only characters that make sense in this entire story. If you're writing the story of the birth of Christ, of course you're gonna have angels. And you're probably gonna have a multitude of them. And the glory of the Lord will shine around. That all makes sense. Nothing else here makes sense. The manger doesn't make sense. Mary and Joseph don't make sense. The travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem doesn't make sense. The shepherds certainly don't make sense. In the middle of the night doesn't make sense. But what we're missing is that this is actually very on brand for God, isn't it? This is exactly how God works. This is exactly from Genesis to Revelation about who God is. If God had a brand, this would be it. If, if God came in as a new CEO to build some culture in his workplace, this is the culture he would build. That shepherds get the good news first. This is exactly who he is. He shows up in the unexpected. But what's happened for us is the same thing that happened for the Jews, for the Pharisees. Same thing that happened to them is what happens to us. We build expectations based on our pride. Well, God, you haven't shown up. And I'm disappointed because I've done the things you told me to and you still haven't intervened for me. And so we've taken what is God's brand, who God actually is, where he shows up and gives good news of great joy to the shepherds, and we've neglected all that. Said, so, no, 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 well, I'm gonna be a guy who earns it. I'm gonna be a girl who deserves it. So we do all the right things and we say all the right things and we go to all the right places and then we get frustrated with God when he doesn't give us what we rightfully deserve. And when he does give it to us, we respond like, that's all? Because I, I, was, I was asking for you to help me pay my bills, plural. And all you did was randomly put an envelope in my mailbox that pays one bill. I asked for all of them. Well, well, I was asking for, uh, I was asking for children and, and you didn't do that. So I, I just, what, you've given me all these kids to serve and to minister to, but what about this one? Mm-mm. Because -mm. I've, I've done all the right things for you, God. I go to church, I give, I serve. Where are you? And so we, like the Pharisees, have become people with expectations and therefore we are people who no longer experience joy. 
because the people that experience joy are the shepherds who have no expectation of the grace of God. Pride prohibits joy. So now you'll say, but I'm not prideful. No, I'm not prideful. I just feel like God should, should do what he says he would do to me all the time, the way that I want him to. Because I feel like I'm, I deserve it and I'm better than the other people. But I'm not proud. No, inherently within us is pride. That's why Eve took of the fruit. Sin manifests itself from pride and it prohibits our joy. Well, let me just give us four indicators of pride that might surprise us that the pride manifests itself in this way. And the first one is control. Do you feel the need to control everything in your life? That's pride. You wanna control your spouse, control your kids, control your boss, control your coworkers, and, and control traffic? That's pride. I can do this better than you, God, I got this. Listen, I'll call you when I need you. I can handle this part of it. That's pride. Where you struggle with control, that is pride. And I'm telling you, you will never experience joy as a control freak. You won't. Because even when they do what you've controlled them to do, you realize they've only done it because you controlled them to do it and you can't experience any joy. And then control manifests itself in complaining. Well, they didn't do it the right way. If they would have done it how I told them to do it, then I think we'd be in a better situation. If they would just run the economy the way that I know how with my high school economics education, then things would be way better. Complain about coworkers, you complain about your spouse, you complain about your kids. You'll never experience joy because complaining is a manifestation of pride which says, I know how to do this better and you're not doing it right, God. What about comparison? Well, it's just not fair. Why did he get that and I didn't? Why, why does she get that and I don't get that one? When she's the one who has made a mess of her life and I'm doing everything right, why don't I get what she has? Why does she get the good husband? Why does she get the kids? Why, why does he get that promotion or he get that job? Why do they have that marriage? Well, we're missing joy because comparison is a manifestation of pride. Pride that says, no, no, I deserve that, not them. Finally, pride manifests itself in criticism. Overly critical people will never experience joy. It's not there to be found for them because the world is not full of opportunity. The world is full of obstacle. And people are not an opportunity. They are obstacles. And when we walk into a room and all we can see is the crooked picture, I'm just saying some people do. I don't do that. I'm saying some people see that. You can't just experience the room and the people for what it is. Pride manifests itself in criticism and pride prohibits joy. And so then what does God have to do? Because I don't, I don't believe God is out to make us suffer. I believe that God is here to bring us, part of what he wants to do is to bring us joy only found in Jesus. And so when we begin to build false idols, we begin to build high places that we think will bring us joy, what God has to do as a loving father is he has to tear down the high places. He has to tear down the idols. He has to tear down the pride of control and complaining and comparison and criticism. And so God will often humble us through humiliation to remind us who he is. 
As a loving father, he will often subject us to humiliation to remind us who he is. The greatest humility is found in the process of humiliation. Judges chapter seven, Gideon is gonna lead um, the Israelite army against the Midianites. And so Gideon has built an army, thousands of trained warriors and men. They're gonna go up against the Midianites who are thousands of trained warriors and men. And Gideon thinks he might have a chance here. And what's happened is Gideon has, has built in himself that he is this general and he's gonna overpower and he's going to win. Sure, 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 like he'll give the glory to God, but ultimately it's about what he did. And God should be blessed that he has Gideon on his team. And, and so God says, all right, fine, um, let's do away with these thousand men. And Gideon's like, ah, hmm. I think we could probably still, if I, if I do this strategy and run these things right, then maybe, maybe then I can accomplish this victory. And God says, oh, okay, well, let's get rid of a couple thousand more. No more horses. Let's get rid of the chariots. Let's get rid of the long-range weapons. Let's, let's just get it down to 300 men. And what God is saying, I'm gonna humiliate this because ultimately we're gonna win and it won't be because of Gideon, it'll be because of me. And so Gideon and the men walk in without expectation of victory and God gives them victory over the Midianite army through, with 300 men. This is what God does. He will subject us to humiliation. He will subject us to some forms of suffering, not to harm us, but to heal us. Not to judge us, but to bring us joy. Because we will never receive joy if we think we've accomplished it. He wants to bring joy. So in John chapter 16, Jesus is telling the disciples that um, he's gonna go and he's going to die. And he says this in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The account of the birth of Christ is just like this. There's sorrow everywhere. They haven't heard from God in 400 years. They're under Roman oppression. The Savior is coming, but he's not coming in a clean, fancy way. He's coming uh, to an un, uh, unwed woman, and now her husband, though. They will give birth. He will, she will give birth and will place him in a manger. And then God will give the announcement to the shepherds, not to the Pharisees, not to the scribes, not to the religious leaders, not the ones that are trusted, not to the kings, but to the shepherds. This is how God has always worked. The path to joy often begins with pain. And I wanna say that this morning as a pastor who wants to give you hope and to encourage you. The path to joy will often begin with pain. And the problem for us is that we medicate our pain with happiness and we never get to joy. James tells us to let patience finish her work. Let endurance finish its work. Let suffering finish its work. That you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If you're suffering today, friend, it's because there's a loving father who's taking you on the path to joy. And the journey that Mary and Joseph took from Nazareth to Bethlehem was a path of suffering that ultimately brought them joy. 
And the path the shepherds took in their lives was a, was a path of suffering that ultimately brought them the greatest joy, good news of great joy for all the people. You see, we have become a demanding, expecting people of God. We no longer approach him with humility. We approach him with demands. Why haven't you? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? Do you know what I've sacrificed? And so we demand and we wonder why God doesn't show up. Well, maybe we're like the Jews and we're expecting a Messiah to come and to overthrow the Roman Empire all the while God has sent him as a baby in an unexpected place, in an unexpected way to unexpected people. We become so demanding and expecting. I grew up in church. I did everything I could to be a good church kid. And the times that I wasn't a good church kid, I did everything I could to counteract that by being an even better church kid. So I did all the right things. I memorized all the verses. I was there every time the doors were open. And I liked it. I enjoyed it. And so I felt like there, there was some favor on me, but I, the problem was I felt like I earned that favor because of my behavior before the Lord. And then I became an adult. And I faced actual suffering and actual hard times and, and actual pain, and actual um, breaking up of relationships, and losing of friends, and sickness, and, I, and death, and I, I faced all of it, and I could not reconcile the fact that this God who said he loved me was letting me go through all of these things, even though I was doing the things that I had been doing my whole life. Why now? Why now is it falling apart? So then I just... I ramp it up and I turn the dial to 11. I'm gonna do more good things. I'm gonna sacrifice more things and be more what he's called me to be. I'm gonna study more and pursue more education and, and all these things. And all the meanwhile, I'm not getting what I think the formula should get for me. And I was demanding and expectant of God. And it finally, my subconscious reached a point where I was like, well, then forget it. I mean, I'll keep following you because not following you sounds awful at the end of days but I'm not gonna mean it. I'm gonna do all the things, but I've got other things that I wanna pursue. And God allowed me to, and I suffered. And at the darkest moments of my suffering, when I expected him to show up the least, he showed up the strongest. And it brought me great joy. And I realized that it was good news of great joy for all the people. Not the good ones, not the religious ones, not, not the type A, not the ones that behave, not the older brother, it's for everyone, for the Pharisee and the shepherd. So I think what we have to do first is admit that we're just like a shepherd. That's why, that's why the gospel is laid out in that way. We first have to acknowledge and admit that we are a sinner in need of a savior. And sure, maybe you did that 30 years ago in children's church, you gotta do it again. And again, and again, and again, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve what God has given to me. I don't deserve this family. I don't deserve the breath in my lungs. I, I don't deserve this church. I don't deserve these people. I don't deserve this joy. And in the unexpectedness, you will find good news of great joy for all the people. So maybe what's happened is we've become a proud people. We're controlling, critical, comparing, complaining people. And we've searched for joy in all the wrong places when joy is to be found through the path of suffering. 
they return, Luke chapter two, verse 20, the shepherds return to their field. But they just got the best news of all time. Why would they go back? Why go back? Why go back to the place where you were discounted and counted out and and not loved and considered less than? Why go back? Because joy doesn't change our circumstances. It changes our perspective. And now they were glorifying God and praising him for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. To them. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? I know that over the past couple of years, it's become really easy to be critical, really easy to become frustrated, really easy to complain, really easy um, to be controlling. And what's happened is we've built up an expectation for the Lord. And we've shifted our eyes to things that he's never promised. And we've turned away from things that are better than that. So maybe today is your first step in this pursuit of true joy. And it begins by being honest that you're just like the shepherds. You don't deserve it. You can't expect it. But by the grace of God, you are what you are. I'm sure there's anyone this morning who just in great courage and boldness of confession would say, would you... Would you just pray for me? I I need help. I've become a proud person. I'm a demanding, controlling, complaining, critical person. You can raise your hand just in boldness and say, yeah, that's me. And I'm having a hard time with joy right now. I'm having a hard time. And I thought it was him, but maybe it's me. Praise the Lord for your boldness today. You can put your hands down. There's a God who is good and he only gives good things but he gives good things in the most most unexpected ways. Maybe we've just become bad at receiving the gift. Father, would you meet us here this morning? God, I'm gonna ask um, that you would break us, that you would humble us. We um, maybe have become proud and we've become critical and we complain and we compare. We try to control things to work out in our favor and we're exhausted because it's not working. We don't remember the last time we've laughed and enjoyed your presence. Don't remember the last time we've just enjoyed a day. So Father, through your spirit, I pray that you would empower us to tear down the high places of pride in our own hearts, that you might um, restore to us the joy of your salvation even today. Or if there's anyone here this morning who would say, yeah, um, I've never experienced the joy of Jesus. I mean, I've got... I've got the happiness of a raise. I've got the happiness of having my kids born and there's some fleeting joy, but I don't, I don't know what you're talking about with this. I don't know if I can believe all of these things about this, but I feel like today maybe I do. And you would say, I, I, I wanna receive this gift, this gift of salvation, of freedom from shame and the punishment of, of guilt and sin. Does anyone here this morning say, yeah, I, I wanna receive Christ as my savior. I want him to save me. Would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, how, how do I do that? I want to give my life to him. I wanna find joy in him and in him alone. The journey there often happens through pain that he might bring us to the fullness of joy, that we would admit that we're a sinner in need of a savior. We believe that Jesus is the son of God. He is the savior. We would confess with our lips and the way we live our lives that he has saved us.
God, I thank you again for this morning. I thank you for the way you love us. I thank you for this gift of grace. May we be good gift receivers today. May we find joy in the unexpected. May we see, uh, have a new perspective of our pain, that it's a path that's leading us to joy. May we not grow weary, help us not to choose fleeting happiness over joy. May we allow uh, steadfastness to finish her work. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.